You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, welcome to our last session on the book of Judges. And I thought we could, um, we could begin with uh, a prayer from, um, this is a collection of Puritan prayers that I have, one of my many collection of Puritan prayers. Nobody could pray like a Puritan. Um, this is one of the prayers by uh, Robert Hawker. And it says this, well, this is our prayer tonight. Let's pray. Dear Emmanuel, in whom alone and by whom alone all our hopes and confidences are found, we fall down at your feet. As the prophet cried out, so we desire unceasingly to exclaim, we are men of unclean lips. We're people of unclean lips. Lord, we pray uh, that you would cleanse us. You are our righteousness. Precious Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega. And even as the Father made you the glorious covenant head of your people in the beginning, so may you be our all in all, our first and last, be the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we pray that you would come to us that you would come to your church, be the fountain of life to all your redeemed until you bring your church below to join your church above so that they will dwell together in the light of your countenance forever and ever. Amen. All right, so the story of Judges, we've come to the end. And the story of Judges uh, is a story of many themes. But uh, one of the key themes that we need to take home is this. Whenever you and I live independently of God, whenever you and I do what is right in our own eyes, our lives will descend into chaos. I think that's one of the big themes of the book of Judges. When you and I try to live independently of God, our lives will not work. Our lives will only work when they're in sync with the one who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the, the architect, right? And so we get to the end of the book of Judges. And, and one thing you don't see is you don't see the spiral anymore. Uh, you usually see the spiral of rebellion, retribution, repentance of sorts, and then a rescue. By the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, all you have is rebellion, 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 and rebellion, and chaos. And um, the only thing that grows is the intensity of Israel's re rebellion against God. And I don't know about you, but uh, I've, if you've read, if you've done your reading this week, this is tough reading. It's among the toughest reading that, uh, that you can do in the Bible. And um, one of the things that you can see is up until chapter 17, um, you get the sense that God is still at work. God shows up, but in these last few chapters, God doesn't show up hardly at all. And um, he's all but absent from the scenes. And so the question is, you know, what happens when we live our lives as if God does not exist or matter? Well, what happens is chaos. And that's what we get in these last five chapters. And I can pretty much guarantee you, well, maybe I shouldn't say this because some of you guys come from different traditions. How many of you, um, 
just let me know how many of you have ever heard a sermon on a Sunday morning from the last five chapters at any part of the last five chapters of Judges? Anyone? Nope. How many of you have ever done memory verses from the last five chapters of the book of Judges? My, my guess is no. Well, maybe everyone did what was evil or right in their own eyes. Maybe we memorize that. Um, I mean, preachers stay away from the book of Judges, especially these last five chapters. My goodness. I mean, when there's a book of John and Philippians to go to, why go to, to these these uh, chapters but this is where we have to go this evening turn we must uh, because this is our job this evening is to finish off the book of judges well the ending of the book of judges uh stands as a stark contrast to the beginning at the beginning what's the first thing we read the first thing we read is that the people inquired of the lord they inquired mm-hmm. of the lord right in the final verse we read in those days there is no king in israel Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the story of Judges is how we got from here to there. How we got from we inquired of the Lord to everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's, that's what Judges is all about. Um, in our last few chapters, um, it's actually interesting. It, there are two epilogues. These last five chapters make up uh, two epilogues, and each epilogue has a different function. The first epilogue is um, is it serves it it it's, it looks at religious chaos basically, and we look at uh, Micah and the Danites, the Danites, people from the uh, tribe of Dan. Uh, Danites, I realize. Um, autocorrect uh, doesn't know Danites. And so I went over all my notes and it, I kept coming across Micah and the dainties and uh, you know, no, it's not the dainties, it's the Danites. So you got religious chaos is in the first epilogue. The second epilogue is moral chaos. And that's where you get absolute civil war. And um, the first epilogue looks at, at religion and the surface of things. The second epilogue looks at the consequences when you and I become morally blind. So with that happy intro, uh, let's take a look. Let's uh, touch base. I'm, gonna, I'm hoping that you guys have uh, you, you've, you've read it. Uh, I'll tell as much of the story as I can as we make our way through, but it, it doesn't, it's not a good substitute for, uh, for actually looking at it. Um, Look at chapter 17. That's where we're going to begin. And we read, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoken in my ears, spoken in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And the mother said, oh, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Uh, Now, therefore, I restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. 
And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and, and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, in case we forgot, there, were no, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, so um, this whole epilogue has a lot to do with religion. Uh, religious chaos, basically. The, the chapter, and in, in these last two epilogues, I'll tell you, the storytelling is superb. It is so well, it's so interesting the way it's put together. We get three introductions in this first epilogue, three introductions. And in each introduction, we're introduced to new characters. Uh, it begins with, there is a man from the hill country of Ephraim. Okay. Now, we've been to Ephraim before, a few times in the book of Judges. Um, that's where Joshua was buried. He was buried in Ephraim. Ehud sounded his trumpet in Ephraim. Deborah uh, held court there. Uh, Gideon sent messengers to call Ephraim to arms against the Midianites. So we, we've, we've come across Ephraim a bunch of times. So we, we, the first character we are introduced is this man from the hill country of Ephraim. Secondly, there's a young man of Bethlehem in Judah that we will meet. And in thirdly, there's the tribes of the Danites. Okay. Now, <laughs> I love this. I was thinking this week, um, well, I, I should, <laughs> sometimes I should probably just keep my head. I was thinking about Charlie Brown this week and there's these old comic book where Snoopy's writing a detective novel and he writes like three different sentences and they're so far apart. And then he has to tie everything together because here you have three different characters and it's your, okay, how's this all, how's this plot going to come together? Well, as we make our way through the story, you see how these, these characters come together. First off, you get Micah. And Micah, again, he's in the hill country of Ephraim. We realize, um, we, we find Micah talking to his mother about a pretty hefty sum of money, 1,100 pieces of silver. Again, that's what we saw in the, with Samson too, which is interesting. And in a single sentence, we learn something. We learn that this 1,100 pieces of silver that his mother had was stolen. And the mother losing 1,100 pieces of silver, calls down a curse on the thief that stole the money. In the same sentence, we learn that the thief who stole the money was none other than Micah. <laughs> and Micah doesn't want a curse to be called down upon him. And so he returns some money to his mother. The mother, seeing her repentant son give back the money, says, well done, my son. And she says, bless you, right? And then in honor of the fact that her dear old sonny boy returned the money that he had stolen from his mother, uh, in honor of that, what the mother did is she paid a silversmith to make um, carven images for a, uh, for a shrine. She makes a graven image and a molten image. <laughs> now, you have to say, what? Like she makes a graven image unto the Lord. Does anybody else find that a little problematic? <laughs> like, 
she basically breaks the second commandment to honor the Lord. She violates the second commandment, makes a graven image, and this new image would take an honored place in the shrine that Micah sets up in the home. Now, Micah, whose name means who is like Yahweh, well, these images are nothing like Yahweh, um, he sets up this kind of household church, household temple. And so he has a shrine. He somehow makes an ephod. Remember, we looked at an ephod. That's, you know, this, we're not quite sure, but some kind of outfit on which so you got the umen and the thumen, and the, you're able to determine what the will of the Lord is. He, he hand makes this. And the only thing he's missing is a priest. That would make his house church work perfectly. He's got a shrine. He's got idols. Uh, he's got the, uh, the ephod. Huh. He needs a priest. Well, he calls his son. Jimmy, get in here. Jimmy? Yes, Pa? How would you like to be a priest? Well, that would be great, Pa. I don't want to work in the fields anymore. Well done. Jimmy, you're the priest, right? Okay, I'm adding that part. But it is his son. I don't know if his name's Jimmy. Um, now, he, this guy, he should know better than this. But this is what he does. And, and this is an example. I mean, this is, man, what an example of what happens when you do what is right in your own eyes. It made sense in his own eyes that this is what you do. You take money that you had originally stolen from your mom. You get, a, you get some of it back. You pay a silversmith. You make your own gods. You get your son. He could be the priest. Put on the ephod. He could determine the will of God. Everything's, everything's great. Again, this is idolatry. What idolatry does is it distorts God. And it's also a, a picture of rebellion against God because it's this idea that somehow through religious acts, we can control God. That's what's going on. Everyone who's doing what is right in their own eyes. This is the end of the first scene. Enter the Levite. So we read about this Levite, right? In verse seven. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. As he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and he meets Micah. So we're introduced to this Levite now. Who is this Levite? Well, we know, we know from later on his name. His name's Jonathan. Uh, we read that he left Bethlehem to look for a place. Now, again, this is not what a Levite is supposed to do. Levites aren't supposed to wander. There's certain places where they're supposed to, 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 to be. They don't, they're not like the littlest hobo that they can just wander around looking for a place to stay. Like that, Lavinia? Lavinia and I were listening to the theme from Littlest Hobo this week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he can't do that, but he's, he's, he's looking around. He's looking for a job. He's on his way. He's looking around. And he arrives in the hill country of Ephraim, and he finds the house of Micah. Now, Micah comes out and talks to him and finds out, wait, you're a Levite? You're a Levite? What are the chances? I cannot believe my luck. A real Levite. Wow. You know, I have a shrine. And right now, my son, Jimmy, he's, he's doing like the work of a priest, but he doesn't really know what he's doing. You're a Levite. You know your stuff. So how about, how about you 
become our priest. We'll pay you. We'll pay you. Uh, we'll give you a room and board. We'll pay you. And I like this. And we'll even give you a clothing allowance. That's actually in the text. We'll even give you a clothing allowance. How about you work for us? We don't know what happened to poor Jimmy. He had to go back out in the fields, we're guessing. Um, in his mind, this is fantastic. An authentic, real priest. Wow. Okay. So that's the second thing. Third part. Enter the Danites. All right. Who are the Danites? Well, the Danites, we read um, in chapter 18. In those days, just as a reminder, in those days, Israel was without a king. Yes. Um, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Okay, so Danites. Who are the Danites? Well, they were a tribe that never really got their inheritance. You know, when Joshua entered the promised land, all the tribes got different, different lands. That was their inheritance. Well, the one tribe that kind of got left out was the Danites. Because we read back in chapter 1, when they try to go up against um, the Amorites, they fail. And so they're kind of like, well, we don't, have a, we don't have anywhere to live. And so they're kind of trying to figure out where to live. And so the Danites take the matters into their own hands. And, and we read uh, in this chapter, in chapter 18, we, there's two groups of these Danites. One, you get a group of spies, of Danite spies, and then you get a larger army and it might even be you know, a, a much bigger group. The whole, the whole tribe, it might even be. Uh, so in each story, okay, so there's two groups of Dan Danites. In each, each of these groups encounter Micah and, uh, and his, his shrine. It's, it's quite interesting. Um, first off, the tribe of Dan, they set aside five guys, five men, to go spy out the land. Does that sound familiar? Right? Remember Caleb and Joshua, they sent to spy, spy out the land? Um, that's what Moses did all those years ago before Israel entered the promised land. We read that they enter, they find uh, this place called Laish, L-A-I-S-H, and they saw that the land was good. Uh, in many ways, the land was a land flowing with milk and honey. And they return and they report it. We found this land. It's awesome land. This is the land I think we should take. It actually mirrors quite a bit of the book of Joshua in some ways. Oh, actually not the book of Joshua. Later on, the book of Joshua, yeah. Now, in this whole narrative, we find two visits to Micah's household and the priest he had hired. In the first place, the spies ask the Levite how he got there, and so they hear his story. Um, and then they ask the priest, they say, hey, you're a priest, we'll pay a few dollars. Tell us, if we go against this land, how will things turn out? You know, you're a priest, ask God, what, what does God say? Well, and the priest says, well, the, he says, go in peace. Uh, whatever you're doing, the Lord is watching over you. They're like, all right, that's, that sounds good. The second visit to Micah takes place later on. And this is because the five spies, they actually tell the army, they said, hey, look, um, here's, here's an idea. Go up to this land, the hill country of Ephraim. There you'll find this Levite and go talk to him and you'll know what to do. So they're, they're setting him up. They're saying, you know, you go up there. And they're like, all right, all right. Um, they, they show up at the doorstep of Micah and his household. And, um, 
And what happens is, is these, these guys show up and they, the first person to see them is a Levite. The Levite comes out and he says, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing on my shrine? And the, these Danites, it's the army, right? And they're, they're tough. And they're like, they're like, hey, just shut up. We're going to take what we want. And you know what? Why don't you come and, and work with us? And he's like, well, I can't. I'm working with Micah. He's like, hey, whatever he's paying you, we'll double it. Why would you, why would you work for one guy when you can work for an entire tribe of Israel? This is way better. And so the Levite is a bit of an opportunist. He's like, all right, let me just give me a moment to gather up my gods, uh, gather up everything in the shrine. I'm coming with you. And the Micah comes out. He's like, guys, hey, what's going on? You can't take my priest. And they're like, well, you shut up. He's coming with us. And if you know what's good for you, you just shut up. And, 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 and uh, Micah's like, well, no. And, and it's interesting. What Micah says, what does he say? He says, he says, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. What will I have left? You take away the gods that I have made. Isn't that interesting? Well, the Danites say, you know, just shut up and go home or, 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 or it's not going to go well for you. And Micah's like, oh, but he goes back. Uh, he goes back to his mom. And uh, the Levite grabs Ephod, all the gods, and heads with the tribe of Dan. Okay. So these guys are bullies, though, because we, we realize that they come to this land of Laish and we read that the land of Laish, that the people were a quiet, unsuspecting people. It was a beautiful place. These Danites, they come and they burn everything down. They kill everybody. And they rename the, the town Dan. And they set up the carved image and they make Jonathan their priest. Now, it's weird because on the outside, this looks like a success story. Like in terms of the result, Dan now has land, has its inheritance. Um, they have their priest, so they have worship there. It's all, but the thing is, the way they go about it stinks. It's like they did all the right moves, all the right procedures, but every step along the way, their heart was in the wrong place. And when I was uh, preparing this this week, I thought, man, is that not a danger for the church? You know, we could do so many things right religiously in the name of God and completely get God wrong and go in strange directions. And that's what happens. I mean, these guys, um, it's, you can, you can, you, they look religious. There's a lot of religious talk. There's a lot of talk about gods and check on God and you got ephods, you got shrines, you got all sorts of things. But the hearts are rotten, which I think is a warning. I mean, what you, you can you can go to church and do lots of things in the church, uh, but your heart can be rotten, and, and it's always a danger in the church when we um, choose form over substance, or form over content, or style over substance. And that's what seems to be happening here. It's a very religious epilogue, but it is chaos. The heart is rotten. And it's that rotten underbelly that's exposed in this story. So that's the first epilogue. Let me pause here and just 
we'll interact a little bit. What do you guys, uh, any questions or comments or thoughts that comes to mind? I had a question. Yeah. So the amount that uh, Micah steals from his mom is 1,100 uh, shekels. It's also the same amount that they paid Delilah to betray Samson. I know. I noticed that too. I, I, I don't know what, what, I thought, well, that's too much of a coincidence that it's the same amount. But I can't figure out what, what the significance is. Like what, why, if, if there's a, do you have some thoughts on that? Is there a tie-in to the story of Samson, do you think? Most of the commentaries that I read said it wasn't Delilah, but some of the commentators thought that it, maybe it was. Maybe this is Samson's illegitimate grandchild or something like that. Oh, no way. Is that, I, I haven't come across that. Well, isn't that interesting, eh? Yeah. I don't know. It might just be that set amount, right? <laughs> Everybody. 1,100 is, 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 uh, it symbolizes... Like, I don't even think symbolically the number 1100 is, is of any significance for my understanding of Hebrew. Sorry, Pastor David. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was the amount they paid for a slave? I can't remember. Is it the same? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. There wasn't a set amount. It depended on the slave. Yeah. Really? I thought it was something like 1100. Or, I don't know. Okay, so homework, everyone. I, no, seriously, see what you can find out because that stood out to me when I saw the 1100. I'm like, wait a minute, isn't that what Delilah got paid 1100 pieces of silver? That but seemed maybe, strange. But maybe this one is uh, the best price for the yearly because that's, uh, he said that's the for one year somebody can make it. So a year's like yeah. that one, yeah, they pay 10, uh, 10 shekel for per month and per year going to be no, yeah. 110. From, from what I've uh, seen, the 1100 pieces of silver um, is uh, a very large amount, more than what a person would make in a year. Mm -hmm. That's from the reading that I've seen, that I've done. But okay, so 1100 was, aside, but, what, what, what else stands out? But one thing stood up for me that's uh, 1713. All of after that, the Mika makes that his gods, he made it. He says, now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have the Levite as a priest. Ah, good. I'm glad that's, you brought that that's, up. That's because you see a lot right now. Every church is making a new church for themselves. They says, God is with me. See how many people come to my church? And they do not have any root on that one, unfortunately. And everybody make themselves priests and they... Uh, do whatever they want to do. They teach what they want to do, teach from the Bible. Very and, good. And you bring I, that one out here. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up, Naira, because you see that for Micah, whose, whose name is, who is like Yahweh, right? Think about that. For Micah, the whole purpose of having a shrine, having an ephod, having the gods, and having a Levite was to make him prosperous. God serves him. God is, a, is, is almost a good luck charm that will make, make him wealthy. And I, I like in one of the commentaries, it says, it just underlines the fact that God does not bless ever idolatry. 
because that's that. But that's what the guy thought. He thought, hey, if I got all this, I mean, what could go wrong? I mean, God's got to. And I think your your connecting point, Naira, to to the church today is sometimes we think, well, if we do this, 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 and this, and this in our spiritual life, then God will bless me. If I give, then God's going to give me even more. Right. And you see the, you know, the lie of the health wealth gospel that God wants me to be rich or that, that kind of theology. Yeah. It, it has a long shelf life. Yeah. yeah. Good. What else? Any other comments before we move on? That, um, interesting that Jonathan is uh, possibly um, a grandson of Moses. There yeah. Any- there's speculation about that. Like that there's, there's, uh, he's either a grandson or a great grandson uh of moses um yeah i don't know i mean i I, i've just seen it that put forward um in in one of the common commentaries but uh yeah i'm not sure if if it's the same name that's that shows up again or if it's uh making specific reference to that but yeah i mean if if anything if that's the case then that just makes it even more exactly you know diabolical right yeah good Well, I think it's a warning to the church because it is a picture of, um, of religious chaos where you and I do all the right things. You do all the right moves, but miss God tremendously. And what a warning to the Christian life. Uh, you can play religion and miss God. But that story, that first epilogue is heavy. It is a heavy. I mean, it's, it's kind of comical a, a little bit, but it, it's heavy. And the Danites, the way they treat the people of Laish is, is dark. It's very dark. But that's nothing compared to what we're about to look at right now. Once we get to chapter 19. Because here you get moral chaos. The first epilogue is about religion. This epilogue is about moral depravity. Now, it's not like moral depravity and religious chaos are disconnected. Uh, You get God wrong, your life will go wrong. When our lives are unmoored from Yahweh, they become unmoored in the decisions we make. And in Psalm 115, it reminds us that you and I become what we worship. And if what we are worshiping is dead, we become dead. And these, are, uh, these chapters capture this oh too well. But as a story, it's brilliantly told. It's a brilliantly told story. It's so well crafted. But I'll tell you, it is hard to stomach. Uh, when I was preparing this, there was a moment where I actually felt nauseous and putting it together. I'm like, I, I, I don't know if I can keep going. Um, it, it's a dreadful story. Uh, the first epilogue is about a northbound Levite and what happens to him. The second epilogue is about a southbound Levite. And it's a dark story with serious themes of the heart. And it, it's what life looks like when you and I, when we, and we are completely unmoored from God, untethered from God. It's a picture of hell. Uh, I think it's a parable in some ways of, of our world today, um, different aspects of our world for sure. Um, it shows what happens when rules are jettisoned, and it looks at chaos. And the story is divided, again, into three parts. In the beginning, we read these words. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a reminder, a certain Levite was sojourning 
in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. Again, they probably passed each other's place. Um, who, who took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at the Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him a servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet them. So we're reminded again, in those days when there's no king in Israel, we read about a certain Levite, a certain Levite sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. He takes a concubine for himself from Bethlehem and Judah. Now, this certain Levite, I was thinking this this week. I'm not sure if there's a more despicable character in the Bible other than the devil than this Levite. Jezebel, maybe. <laughs> I'm trying to think who, who, would, who, would, who would give this guy a run. This guy is just one of the worst characters you're going to come across. We meet that, we, we find out that this Levite, he had met a woman and she'd become his concubine. Um, there's no talk really in the whole story of a love and affection between the two. In fact, it looks like, uh, well, I, I mean, we also know um, stories with concubines in the book of Judges. They don't tend to go that well because last time we encountered a concubine, it was with Abimelech, Abimelech's mom, and, and that didn't go well. But this relationship, out of this relationship comes waves upon waves of tragedy. We read that this woman, the concubine, she leaves her husband. She leaves the Levite. Uh, it literally says, you know, she was, uh, she played the, it says she played the harlot. She was unfaithful. But what it means most likely is that uh, she just left him. Um, not for another man. She just left him. So there must have been something wrong with the way he treated her to cause her to want to leave. But she leaves because she doesn't go off with another guy, but she goes back to her father's house, right? Uh, in Bethlehem. Her only desire seems to be to get away from her husband. But after four months, I guess the Levite, um, he makes a journey to Bethlehem and he wants to regain her by persuading her to return with him. And the father-in-law sees the uh, Levite coming and uh, he, he, he responds with joy. And he says, oh, stay and eat, stay and eat. And we read that the uh, Levite, he speaks kindly to the concubine, trying to convince her. And he convinces her to come back with him, for her to come back with him. The father-in-law says, well, I'm so glad you came. Um, why don't you stay and eat? Have a meal with me. And hospitality, as you know, if some of you are from Eastern, Eastern cultures, hospitality is a big deal, especially in, uh, in the Middle East and a lot of places other than Canada. <laughs> Hospitality is there, but it's, it's bigger in other places. Um, Latin America as well. Um, you know, Hebrews 13.2 says, do not neglect the show of hospitality of strangers. So at this part of the story, everyone seems kind of happy. The Levite is kind of sort of reconciled with the woman. The father-in-law and the son-in-law are getting along. They're spending days together eating and drinking. He's staying at his in-laws and everything seems good. And you wish the story could end. Stop, stop. But cracks are beginning to show. Something happens. 
Well, it seems that in these days of having meals together and drinking together, the father-in-law and the son-in-law are having a grand old time. The concubine has basically been left out of the story. And we do know that hospitality is important, but this is hospitality that's over the top because every time the Levite wants to go, the father-in-law says, ah, stay one more day. Oh, it's nighttime, stay one more day. Oh, it's morning, you may as well stay and have some meal and leave in the afternoon. Oh, it's afternoon, stay for the evening. And they keep saying that and the guy keeps staying and he keeps staying. You see, he wants to go, but this is an over-the-top amount of hospitality. For some reason, the father-in-law could not bear to let him go. And such a trivial thing will cause major damage. Because by the fifth evening, notice the time. It's, it's, it's later in the day. The Levi said, I, man, I, I can't stay any longer. Let's go. We got to go. Well, you don't leave in the evening. <clears throat> so he leaves and he knows he's not going to get very far. <clears throat> Night travel. There's not street, there are no street lights in the ancient Near East. Um, so it's, it's dangerous, right? It's dangerous. I mean, you think of how many scary movies take place at noon, right? <laughs> it always takes place at nighttime, right? And so it's, it's approaching evening and the Levi says, we're going. So he grabs his concubine, grabs his uh, servant and his donkey and, and, and they leave. And as they're going, uh, the, the servant's getting a little nervous. And he says to, uh, to his master, he says, master, um, here's the town of uh, Jebus. Um, and uh, which is, you know, Jerusalem, but it still belongs to the Jebusites. It's not an Israelite town yet. And uh, he says, well, let's stay here. It's getting late. And um, the Levite says, well, no, it's, uh, I'm not staying there. It's not an Israelite town. We can't trust these people. Let's push on. And we'll push on a little bit further. And so they push on and they arrive at the town of Gibeah. Now, Gibeah belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. So it's an Israelite town. So the Levite thinks, well, that's good. It's an Israelite town. I'm an Israelite. This is, this is, this is good. We are better off staying in our brothers and sisters town than we are staying in some pagan town. That's for sure. So let's do that. All right. Now, he arrives in Gibeah. But right away, right away, if you're, if you're there, your spider sense is tingling. Something's not right with the town of Gibeah. Um, and we know this because although it's sunset, um, everybody's going inside. Everybody's going indoors and nobody speaks to them. They're sitting in, they're sitting in the public, in the, uh, in the town square. They're in the town square. Nobody talks to them. Okay, so much for Middle Eastern hospitality. And uh, finally, an old man stops and he says, what, what are you guys doing out here? And they're like, well, hey, look, we're looking for a place to stay. Nobody's talked to us. We have food, we have money, we have everything. We just need a place to stay. And the old man says, well, you better come with me. Spend the night with me because uh, it's not good to spend the night in the square. Why? That's a bit scary. He's like, don't, you don't stay outside after dark in this town. Now, the last time we get an eerie feeling about a town, what's that town called? Sodom. Sodom, yeah. Sodom, yeah. Yeah. 
That's the last time we have this kind of feeling. Sodom, remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, the thing about Sodom and Gomorrah, they're heathen cities. This is an Israelite city. But in both cases, what you find is that after dark, it's not like there's a bunch of young people like to party after dark. That's not the issue. It's that after dark, you get what the Bible calls worthless people prowling the streets with violence on their mind. And the violence they want to do is they want to rape men. That's their goal, is, is to rape men. And if they can't rape a man, then, then maybe a woman, but they're looking to rape a man. And that's precisely what the Levite and his entourage and the old man experience. They experience these guys coming to their door. Um, and what's staggering is that this seems to be, the, 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 the passage seems to indicate that this is a nightly occurrence in the town of Gibeah. Like this, you don't go out at night because of this. This is a state of society in an Israelite town. Wow. Now, the old man, he hears people outside and they bang on his door and they say, let, we hear that uh, you got this uh, Levite with you this, or this guy's with you, send them out so we can have sex with them. Now, the old man wants to honor the rules of hospitality. And so what does he say? He says, no. He says, this Levite, this man is, this Levite is my guest. And so, no, you cannot rape him. So far, so good. That's good. Until you hear what he says next. What does he say next? He says, look, I have a daughter, a virgin daughter, right? I have a virgin daughter. And this man has a concubine, his wife. Why don't we send them out and you can rape them instead? Wow. Um, yeah, do not do this vile thing. Here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men wouldn't listen to, listen to him. <laughs> First of all, I mean, this, well, that's kind of a strange expression of hospitality. Don't you think? One, you know, okay, I get it. You want to protect the Levite. But two, you're not only offering your daughter, you're offering this guy's wife. Like what gives you the right to offer his wife, right? In the seven, they, do, they did the exact the same. In the seven, What's that? Exactly. In the sadhu, the guy, the hospital, the host exactly say the same word. I give my daughters to you. Don't touch these guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this is, but in this case, you got this old man. He's offering the Levite's wife, his own daughter. I get that. But still, that's problematic. But he's also offering the, uh, the Levite's wife. <laughs> okay. Now, here you have. Here you have a man trying to do the right thing. But when you try to do the right thing, but your life is unmoored from truth, your morality is twisted and distorted. Now we could throw, we could look at this and say, well, this is so strange, but 
okay, I'll go out on a limb here, but uh, you know, we live in a world right now where we're bending over backwards to protect the elderly from COVID-19 and, and being sick only to offer them medical assistance and dying once they're back, once we're safe. We, um, we protect kids with social services and yet offer them when they're teenagers, uh, hormone blockers and all sorts of invasive surgery that will basically wreck their bodies for life. Or we build children's hospitals and we carry out abortions in them. You know, you, when you try to live morally, but you're unmoored, your morality expresses itself in strange ways. And if that weren't troubling enough, what takes place next really turns the stomach. Because what does the Levite do? He suddenly grabs his concubine and he throws her outside to the mob. And the story goes is that they rape her all night. And then we read these words. Um, in verse 27, it says, and her master rose up in the morning. What, he, he, he slept. He was able to sleep all night after throwing his concubine outside to be raped. He goes to bed and, he's fall and he sleeps. And then he gets up in the morning and, uh, and he wants to go on his way. And he opens the door and who's lying at the, at the doorstep, at the threshold, but his concubine. And, and what does he say? He says, get up, let's go. That's literally what he says. Get up. Let's go. Let us be going. But there's no answer. Is she dead? Is she unconscious? The text actually doesn't tell us. Well, what does he do? He takes her and he throws her on the back of his donkey, takes her home. And then he cuts her up into 12 pieces. Was she alive? Was she dead? We don't know. And he sends the pieces of her body to the tribes of Judah, each with a cover letter saying, this is what took place at Gibeah. I told you, this is, this is tough stuff. This is, this is the Bible, but man, this is tough. But here's the thing. When religion is all show and morality is messed up, when we try to in some way carry out justice, it's gonna look weird. And that's what happens, justice. Because the next few chapters is all about justice, but justice when it's unmoored from relationship with God looks really wonky. Now on one hand, it's good because the people of Israel, they see what took place, you know, they, they see the body, they're, they're shocked, the pieces of the body, and they see what took place at Gibeah was wrong. And so, outrage they're outraged and they gather together and it's one of the few times where you see israel gathering together as one and they come around um the 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 levite and they show sympathy to the levite and it's, again it's not often that you see israel that united and so at mizpah most of israel gathers no benjamin of course because that's the tribe that carried this stuff out um they all gather and they ask the Levite what happened. 
and which is good because they want to make sure that they get an official record of what happened. And so they asked the Levite what took place. And listen, this is, so look at verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 3. It says this, partway down. It says, tell us, how did this evil happen? Okay, listen to what the Levite says. And then the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered. Murdered by whom? Doesn't say. Answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. And so I cut her into pieces throughout the countryside in inheritance and, and, and basically give your, and then he says, behold, you people of Israel, all of you give your advice and counsel here. Okay. What are your thoughts about what the, what the Levite says? Was that a, a pretty good summary of what happened? What, what, tell me, give, give me some details. How does he, how does he get it? Uh, how does he get it wrong? Yeah, go ahead, Lori. Well, he completely leaves out what he did. Yes, he, he, he completely uh, leaves out his role. He is just as guilty as the men who violated her. Yeah. As, you know, as anything. And so he, he, he comes across uh, all innocence. This is what they did to me and my concubine. Yeah, well, and, and it's all about him, isn't it? He goes, I came to Gibeah that belongs to, and I, my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. Oh, and they violated my concubine and she's dead. So he's a victim. He's, in, in the way he tells the story, he is clearly the victim. What else? Is there, there's something else. There's another little distortion here that's going to actually blow up on them. It's going to blow up big time. What else do you notice? The way he tells the story. He lays it at the feet of the leaders of Gibeah, not the worthless men that surround Exactly. Him. Well done. Yeah. He says it's the leaders of Gibeah that did this. Okay. Now that's different because we, what we know is it's just a bunch of hooligans, a gang that roams the streets at night that do this. Not the leaders of Gibeah. It's these worthless fellows. But what does he, he, he ups the ante. He says, no, no, it's, it's, it's the whole leadership of Gibeah. Like the, the leadership basically of the Benjaminites are behind this. Is it worth noting here that Gibeah isn't really true Israel? Go on. Well, like that's the that's the, you know the, the the reason why they're there is don't make don't make covenants with people, and then the Gibeonites played the trick on Israel and sent the delegation with moldy bread, right? Yeah, except except we do read that it is it is part of the uh, the tribe of, of Benjamin at this stage, but it, it's being administered by Benjamin, maybe, but. It's not really the true Israel. It's the same. It's the same reason why um, Herod, right? He's not right, right, really right. a Jewish yeah. king, right? That if there's still the stigma by then, 
I, I don't know. Is is there is it worth noting that, or is there anything to that, or? Seems David. To be in, 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 yeah. Go ahead. I would also uh, mention that similar to what uh, the gentleman is saying is that this is the same mixed multitude that gave Moses issues when other tribes tried to join in and basically create what we would call a fifth column within Israel. So there was, it's basically rotten, rotting from within, and it's the leadership that is sets the moral example for the rest for the well, rest. Of yeah, the nation and, and, you, the and you could you could say that that you know. If, if you got a gang of thugs roaming the streets in your town every night raping men, you should probably get a new mayor. Yeah, I get that. But it's, it's, it's interesting because what he says, though, it does heighten. Because what, what, what could have happened is you could have had the people of Israel that are gathered together as a police force, you know, in a way, go and deal with what these worthless men had done. And so it's localized, but now all of a sudden, the ante's been raised, and for some reason, the Benjaminites, when when push comes to shove, they stand with the leaders of Gibeah. And the, the thinking is, is that because the Levite, by selective telling of the story, he raised the level so much that the, that's what the Benjaminites did say. Okay, the, you're now going after. In some way, they had interpreted it that as they're going after us as a tribe and we need to stand our ground. Whereas if you're going after some thugs in your tribe, then the tribe might say, okay, hey, you know what? It's good to get rid of these, these bad apples. You see what I mean? It, it, it was a bit of a distortion of what, I, well, it was a distortion of what happened. Again, the Levite, he plays the victim, barely mentions the concubine says that she's dead, doesn't say how she died, and we're still not. And that ambiguity in the text, I think, is intentional, because we don't know if the Levite killed her or if these worthless men did. But also say, you get this story, and, and the impact of this is huge. These men violated my concubine, these leaders, and she is dead. And the people, they, they hear this and, and they, they take it at face value and they're enraged, justifiably so. And it's good. I mean, they are. And, 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 but then they take on punishment, not just against um, the people who did this, but against the city of Gibeah. And they end up going to war against uh, the Benjamites. And now the problem is, is these Benjaminites are pretty tough fellas and and a lot of the israelites die in the, in the first couple of battles right but but we can't miss the fact what, what is going on here what is happening in the book of judges we go from the very chapter one um they inquired of the lord you know shall i go up against you know who shall go up against the enemy well judah should go up you have Israel claiming its inheritance, and now you have a situation of civil war. All hell is breaking loose. Like you just think about the, the book of Judges. I mean, we've never seen this, it's never gotten this bad. And so, again, the Benjamites, rather than agreeing with Israel, they stand with, uh, with the people of Gibeah. Um, 
the Benjamites are no slouches in battle and they win uh, initially. And it's interesting, the end of Judges parallels the beginning. In chapter one, Judah goes up against the enemies. And in chapter uh, 20, Judah goes up against the fight to, to fight the brothers, the Benjaminites. And the brothers, they, they mentioned this twice, but their brothers, the Benjaminites. And they're killing each other. Now, when all is said and done, when all is said and done, and the battle and the Benjaminites are finally defeated, 50,000 people, over 50,000 people are, are, are being killed. And one of the tribes of Israel is almost completely wiped out. Because once Israel starts winning, they go on a pogrom and they just start to, to, to massacre, massacre the Benjaminites. And, and at the very end, you're left with 11 tribes of Israel, almost 11 and a bit. There's no joy over the victory. There's sadness. And throughout the Benjaminite countryside, it's littered with corpses. Every town is a smoking ruin. And of the entire tribe of Benjamin, we read that there's only 600 left. 600 people, 600 men that are left. It means all the women, all the children, everybody's massacred. And it's a mess. And now the war is over. And how do you make it right? I mean, you think of wars in history, like World War I. You know, how, it's such a mess. How do you make things right afterwards? There's only 11 tribes of the 12. And this whole mess is compounded by two stupid oaths that the Israelites make. The first oath, as they said, you know, we hate these rotten Benjaminites so much that there shall be no intermarriage between us and the Benjaminites. They make an oath. We're never going to marry them. Um, and so, okay, then, then there's no more offspring if you're not going to marry them. And then there's another oath, and this is called the Great Oath, which I would call the Great Dumb Oath in 21.5, where they said, okay, the other thing is anyone who does not join, who did not join in this battle, well, they deserve to die. So anyone not come to this battle? Well, yes, apparently. Um, Jabeth Gilead had not sent fighters. And so what do we do about this? Well, let's kill everyone, but leave their virgin daughters alive. Because you know what? These Benjaminites are, are, are brothers. They need wives. There are 600 of them. So they kill everybody in Jabeth Gilead, except for 400 virgins. But the problem is there's still 200 people short. So you got a second solution. All right, we're still 200 women short if we're going to save this tribe that we've just almost massacred. So the second solution is they're like, hey, we have an idea. You know, every year there's a, there's a festival to the Lord that takes place at Shiloh, which is Shiloh, which is actually where the, the Ark of the Covenant is. It's a, it's a religious center. Um, and... And here's an idea. So they spoke to 200 of the remaining Benjamites. He goes, you guys still don't have wives. So here's an idea. We're not doing this. It's not us. But here's our suggestion to you. Why don't you? This is not us getting you a wife because we made that oath. Uh, we're not involved. But why don't you lay an ambush? Because 
Um, what happens is when there's a festival, um, the daughters of Shiloh come out and they dance and they come out of the vineyards. And when they come out of the vineyards and you see a woman you like, just take her and make her your wife, right? Uh, and take her back to the land of Benjamin. Do you not find it really odd here that all of a sudden they're keeping one of God's laws? <laughs> well, it, but here's the thing, uh, Jeremy, is that it's it's so messed up, right? Like you, you, you think about this. The, what are these women celebrating when they come out? They're coming out. It's almost like Miriam, right? They're coming out and they're celebrating. They're tech, they're either celebrating Passover, the festival of weeks, the Pentecost, or the Feast of the Tabernacles. So what they're doing, though, in each of these cases, is they're coming out and they're celebrating the goodness of Yahweh. The people use the pretext of obeying God because they made an oath to God, so they have to keep their oath as a way to disobey the ways of God and encourage men to violate the lives of those who are genuinely worshiping God. You see what chaos the book of Judges has entered. It is so cuckoo bananas. It is, it is, it's off the charts. You have women celebrating the goodness of God who are being kidnapped. And you got the Israelites who are thinking they're obeying God because they made an oath, which God never asked them to do. They're doing this to save their brothers that they had actually massacred and got them into the situation. Like, it is crazy. It is, it is, that's why it's chaos. It is chaos. So with that, let's pray. No, okay, one, one more thing, one more thing. <laughs> one more thing. Now, look at, turn to chapter 21. Now, this is, this is strange. This is strange. Chapter 21, the very end. Chapter 21, verse 23. Okay, this is when all the smoke goes out and all the dust settles. Verse 23. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives. And so they kidnapped them, according to their numbers, so 200, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and, re okay, notice the language. They went and returned to their inheritance. And they rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, given what's going on, you would think by the end of the book of Judges, there would be no more Israel that this would be the end of Israel as a nation. But that's, that's not what we read. What do we read right at the very end? We find Israel returning, rebuilding, the rebuilding towns, the rebuilding community. They are returning to their inheritance that had been given to them by God in the first place. That God's promise laid out in the Pentateuch, carried out under Joshua, was still in effect at the end of the book of Judges. And then we read these, these haunting words, but important words. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, on one hand, it's a dire warning. But on the other hand, it tells us that the person who's writing the book of Judges is looking back. 
in those days, there was no king in Israel. In those days, there was no king of Israel. Um, it's a warning, but on the other hand, it tells us that the person who's writing this as, as is writing from a standpoint of looking back. Back then, they used to do things. They used to do what was right in their own eyes. But he's writing from a perspective saying, look, can you? this is what it used to be. And so it points to a time where a king does come. And, and we actually get hints of this in, in the next book, in the book of Ruth. Right? The book of Ruth is such a balm, not a B-O-M-B, but B-A-L-M, um, is such a healing balm to the book of Judges. And the book of Ruth actually begins with an interesting line, it links it. In those days when the judges ruled, there was a, He's talking about judges ruled, right? Um, but the book of Ruth is a beautiful book. And it, it points to the coming king. It's, it's the story of, uh, it's the, you know, the, the ancestry of, uh, of David. So at the end of the book, despite all the civil war, despite all the chaos, we find Israel, each tribe having their inheritance, rebuilding, renewing, and living which is, I, I, it cannot be anything else but a picture of God's grace in the midst of chaos. And that's why we call this class God in chaos, because he's in the middle of the chaos. And I think so there's a couple lessons from, uh, from these epilogues. Uh, one is that uh, about religion, that religion can be done right, but it can be done with a darkened heart. And we need to be careful of that. You can have the right worship music. You can have the right amount of fog machines set up. Um, you can do all these things in the name of the Lord, but your heart can be miles from God. The story of the second Levite shows us how the moral life of God's people, um, it shows it how, how messed up it can be. You got everybody trying to do the right thing, but nobody knowing what the right thing is. And it's a dangerous thing when a world that does not know what is right and what is true and what is good tries to do what is right and true and good. That is very dangerous. Um, and there's a guy named Alan Jacobs. He's a, um, he's a writer from uh, Baylor down in the South. I really like his writing. He says, every culture has a certain amount of moral, moral energy. He says, the problem is, is that if you live in a world with no absolutes, there is no truth, there is no good, there is no evil. You still have a society that wants to express itself morally. Um, but the way it does it, it does it in a very wonky, crazy, strange way. And, and I think that's, you see evidence of that in our world today. I think these chapters are a warning to uh, nations that have been built on Christian truths that have jettisoned these truths. We live in Canada that, you, see, you know, I mean, a lot of our institutions were based upon certain understanding, biblical understanding about what it means to be human, the dignity of being human. Certain of our institutions were influenced by a Christian understanding of the world. Um, but we're, we were moving beyond that. And as a, a professor of mine once said, he says, a shadow casts no shadow. We're living in the shadow of, 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 of the Christian influence and, and that's disappearing. Um, and so this is a warning. I think these chapters are a warning to the church that's content to live on past glories. 
um, but maybe have embraced false teaching and false living. And I think one of the big themes in this is that the Lord, that God, that Yahweh is there even when we're ignoring him. That God is there, that we may try to eclipse God. We may deny God. But denying God doesn't make him not exist, does not make him disappear. Uh, he is still there. And in these chapters, it's, it's, it's strange because he, he speaks when he is spoken to. But for the most part in these passages, God is just allowing, allowing um, the chaos that Israel has, has entered into to continue, to continue, to allow them to kind of, he basically handed them over to, to, their, to their desires. Um, because the, the people never ask God whether or not they are, when they do inquire of him, they're always saying, God, um, they're inquiring like, well, who should go up first? They don't say, should we go up first? Or should we do, what should we do? None of those questions are even asked. And um, the voice of the Lord becomes quieter and quieter and quieter as you can make your way through the book of Judges. Uh, but he's there. And he does not abandon his people. And it reminds me, um, I was thinking about this this week when we're going back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember after the Sodom and Gomorrah um, that the one guy who survived, who survives, who turns into a pillar of salt? Lot's wife. Lot, yeah, Lot's yeah. wife. So Lot survives, and who's 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 with Lot? Daughters. His daughters, and we know Lot gets drunk, and his daughters uh, sleep with him because they're like, "Hey, our husbands—they all—they all melted, right?" So we have no husbands left. So let's sleep with our dad. Uh, and uh, at least we'll be able to have children. So they have children. They, they sleep with their dad and they have children. And But do you know which two groups come out of this? Those? Yes, the Ammonites and the Moabites who became bitter enemies of Israel. Very good. Yeah, the Ammonites and the Moabites, both are major enemies of Israel. But what is the book of Ruth all about? Moabite. A Moabite woman. So God takes something that's dark, take something as evil that takes something as chaotic and God is a consummate dancer takes that and he makes a Moabite you know a product of all this brings her in and she enters into the um, lineage not only of David but of our Lord Jesus Christ and so that's the picture uh, reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 5:20, where sin increased Grace abounded all the more. Or in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so the picture of the book of Judges is, even though there's, I think, so many warnings in our lives, it is a picture of God's grace, God's presence in chaos. I think that's what we come, we come away with in the... In, in the book of Judges. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.